Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for giving the show a listen today. Wherever it is that you are, we are so glad that you're here. And did you know that we're now available as more than just an audio podcast? It's true. Also putting up shows now on YouTube. Just head over to the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and subscribe. Recently had one listener stumble across and say, hey, that's what you and Lee Crosby look like. Didn't say whether we looked good or we looked bad. They simply said that their curiosity had been satisfied. I'm hoping that it was good. That's not for me to say. Anyway, let's get serious for a second. At the heart of the Exam Room podcast is the drive for all of us to live longer and healthier lives. The vast majority of how we get that message across is through conversations about nutrition. But today we're going to accomplish our mission in a little bit different manner. Today, we're going to be talking about tissue donation. Now, why are we talking about that? Well, for a number of reasons. First, it goes to the heart of living longer and combating the epidemic of diseases that plague our society. When you donate your organs or you donate tissue to research, your gift goes directly to studies that can then impact millions of lives. Think about that. Millions of lives. Obesity rates are continuing to climb worldwide, and in the U.S. alone, more than two out of three of us are either overweight or we actually meet that criteria for obesity. And with obesity comes the skyrocketing odds of developing heart disease or diabetes or cancer, so many diseases that can dramatically shave years off of our lives. And many of the foods that are found in abundance in our supermarkets and at the drive-thru, they also spike the risk for those diseases, even in those who aren't overweight. So the time has come for us to find a cure for these beasts of burden. It needs to happen for so many reasons. And tissue and organ donation is perhaps the best way to help scientists and researchers move as rapidly and as efficiently as possible toward finding cures for those diseases. Another big reason we're talking about this today? The impact that human tissue donation has on animal testing. That's another one of our big initiatives here. Animal welfare. We're going to be getting to this more deeply on the show, but think about it like this. Say a researcher is using mice to find a cure for Alzheimer's disease. Unfortunately, that's that's not an uncommon practice. Here's the snag, though. They're working on developing a treatment for humans. And the last I checked, I don't have cute whiskers, I don't have four legs, nor do I have a tail. So wouldn't the results of these trials be far more accurate if human tissue was being used to find a cure for a human disease. Not only that, but human tissue helps eliminate the need for animals in these clinical trials. No more cages, no more inhumane conditions, simply because a superior sample source of tissue 
was available. These are things that a lot of us really don't think about until after we've adopted a plant-based diet. Some people do, but think about the millions who start their vegan journey simply because they want to lose weight. It's the most popular reason for making the switch, right? It's only later then that they discover this whole other side of the plant-based movement. So on today's show, you're going to hear the heartwarming story of Sarah Gray. She and her husband were put in an unthinkable position. While she was carrying twins, doctors informed them that one of the twins had developed a fatal birth defect and the odds of surviving for any great length of time after delivery were astronomically stacked against them. So faced with this devastating news, Sarah and her husband decided that that death would not be in vain. She wanted that baby's life, however short, to have meaning. And so she researched organ donation. Today, she's here to talk about how that decision, how that donation is now impacting the lives of millions of people as scientists are using that child's tissue for groundbreaking research to find cures for so many different diseases. You're going to hear about how she was able to track her son's organs and visit the labs where this amazing medical research was being conducted. You're also going to hear about the relationship that she's forged with some of these brilliant scientists who handled this tissue and put it to good use. And then a little bit later, I'm going to be joined by Christy Sullivan. She's the vice president of research policy here at the Physicians Committee, and she has some very interesting insight on what other diseases are really being benefited from human organ and tissue donation. There's so many of them, including the leading forms of cancer. Plus, we're going to have some tips on how you can get involved if you're interested in becoming a donor. And here's a cool note. It's something that you can do today. You don't even have to wait until after you die to help. There are so many ways to get involved, so many ways to save both human and animal lives. It's an important show and one that starts right now as I sit down with Sarah Gray. This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. A change of pace on this week's show. And we're going to be talking about a very important topic. You know, you can just check a little box on your driver's license and you really don't think too much about it. Are you an organ donor? Yes or no? It's a very powerful question and one that my next guest has a very powerful story to share with us and i'm very happy to welcome to the program she is an author she's an advocate she's a speaker her name is sarah gray and i'm so grateful to have you here today thanks for having me chuck you have the book in front of you which you have written uh, life everlasting uh which is very powerful because this is a subject that hits extremely close to home for you so why don't we start um, if you could just share with our listeners your story and, and how you became involved in tissue donation sure uh, well in September of 2009 I learned I was pregnant with identical twins and 
when my husband and I went for the second sonogram, we learned that one of the twins was healthy, but that the other had a lethal birth defect called anencephaly. So um, the doctors explained that babies with this diagnosis typically die in utero or within a few minutes, hours, or days of being born, and that there was nothing that could be done to prevent or, you know, there was nothing that could be done to help the baby. We just had to carry the pregnancy to term and realize that one of the babies was going to live and the other one was going to die shortly. Mm. So we had about five months of time to prepare for the birth and for the death, and um, I looked into organ donation. That um, five-month time, that must have been a heart-wrenching five months. It was agonizing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that I had time to prepare because a lot of people don't, Uh, but it was a weird five months, and it was um, emotionally um, taxing. Just, you know, I feel guilty being excited about the birth. I feel guilty dreading it because... It's going to be, you know, the best day of my life, the worst day of my life. It was yeah. such a mix. Yeah. Um, how was that that discovery process for you? Uh, I don't think that a lot of people realize that a, a stillborn, you, you are able to donate the organs from that. Like, I honestly didn't know or even take the time to think about that until we're having this conversation now. Yeah. Well, my son wasn't stillborn. He was born alive. Oh, okay. Um, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, But that's a common um, question. I mean, there's a lot more babies that are stillborn than you might realize. And Mm -hmm. once people start talking about it, it it's kind of a stigma. It's kind of a taboo. But um, there are some cases when babies who are stillborn can donate different types of organs Mm -hmm. but it really depends on what researcher is looking for something and the condition that the baby's body is in after they pass away but it's always worth asking right um i would imagine i mean newborns like anybody else i mean are probably in need of, of transplants from time to time um and so i'm sure that the doctors were very helpful and and kind of pointing you in the right direction and maybe walking. I see you smiling, so maybe that wasn't the case. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, because it was such an unusual case, um, that when I asked the doctor at the sonogram, you know, do you think we could donate this baby's body for medical research or something? I mean, we're going to carry the pregnancy to term, Mm -hmm. which was, I mean, that was a choice. We could carry to term or not, but um, selective termination was brought up, and that was not really an option for us because what would happen to one would happen to the other. Right. So once we made the decision to carry through with the pregnancy, I asked the doctor, could we donate this baby's body for study? Because it sounds like, you know, there's not a lot known about this. When we were asking, how did it happen? What did we do? How is this possible? The doctor didn't have much to say. So Hmm. when I said, do you think we could donate this body? Maybe his body would be helpful. The doctor said, you know, oh, I, I don't think so. I don't think that that's possible. But after I contacted our local organ procurement organization to find out options, um, they really enlightened me on a lot of different things or possibilities. Wow. But it's something, I mean, especially like a OBGYN, like their specialty is delivering a healthy baby. Sure. They don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of a baby that's died, that's this size, that, you know, those are really issues that he can pass on to someone else and say, I, I don't know the answer, but you really need to contact your, the local organ procurement group here. Sure, sure. Were you able at all to find out where 
uh, oh, yeah. his, his donations. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. So I, I know sometimes maybe that information can be protected, but you were able to find out? Well, what happened is after, um, you know, before the twins were born, I signed the consent form saying that we would donate for research. And mm-hmm. we agreed to donate for research because the um, organ procurement group was able to take the measurements of my sonogram to figure out what size he would be when he was born. Mm-hmm. And they determined he would probably be too small to donate for a transplant ah. because there were twins. They were both a little small. I was going to deliver a little early. but And they tried to match the size of the donor with the recipient. And they said there's just no recipients that are this tiny waiting sure. for a heart. You know, like they're not even born yet. Sure. So we agreed to donate for research. And then once the twins were born, they were both born alive. Thomas died six days later. Oh, okay. Um. And he died at home, and we had a hospice nurse to declare the death. Um, at that moment, we called the Washington Regional Transplant Community. They sent a van to our home. It was like 3 in the morning. They sent a van to our home right away. They picked up his body and brought it to the local hospital, Children's National Medical Center, where they recovered his eyes and his liver. And the next day, I got a call to say that the recovery was a success. There's actually um, it's like a period of time that you really have to move fast because the blood has to oxygenate sure, things. Sure. And it's almost like the organs go bad after a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. So I was delighted that we, the recovery was a success. We got there in enough time. that um, the or, So that I learned that the corneas were sent to Boston, part of Harvard Medical School. The, corn, or the retina, which is the back of the eye, went to University of um, Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And the liver went to a cell therapy company called Cytonet in Durham, North Carolina. And then my husband and I had signed up for another study where we sent all of our family's blood to Duke University. See, that's interesting. I didn't realize, and we're not talking about a transplant here because you you said that the body was just too small. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that the same type of expiration would be set on tissue then for research. Research. You know, it's... They've got some interesting protocols. So depending on the study that they're doing, they might need the tissue preserved in a certain way before a certain amount of hours. So what happens when a family like mine makes an inquiry, or like any family that may be listening, has some someone loved one in their family that um, passes away, you could call your local organ procurement organization and have them do a search on any researchers that are in their system and what the protocols are. So you mentioned that your initial OBGYN wasn't really familiar with right, this yeah, process. Right, Were yeah. there any other challenges or obstacles that you encountered during this, this five-month period? Um, not, not, in, not in terms of organ donation. Okay. I mean, <clears throat> there were some surprises. For example, like you, I thought that all you had to do was die. I didn't think you had to die in a certain way or have a certain time limit. Like I just thought once you die, they'll take whatever's there right. no matter what. Right. I didn't know. Right. But then I started – I mean, it makes sense. And I learned like it's got to be refrigerated or it's got to be preserved in this kind of um, liquid that pres- – you know, it's like all this stuff makes sense. I had just never thought about it. Yeah. So they told me when he was like rejected to donate for transplant, I was kind of shocked about that. But makes sense. Sure. And then um, I thought also before he died, I would be able to know what kind of studies the the tissues would go to. And I learned that they have to wait till after he dies to determine 
you know, is he, is he still born? That's a little bit different than if he's born alive. And mm-hmm. there are different um, factors that they had to look at. So once I figured it out, it was fine. Did you have a hand in choosing where these organs were directed to? The- no. Um, there was, well, I should say the, the cord blood. That was our choice. But we found the only study that we knew of on anencephaly, so the cause of the disease that our son had, and signed up for that separate. So um, we signed up for that before he died, and it required cord blood of both twins and then a blood draw for me and my husband. Mm. Aside from that, we just donated to the system, and the system chose the, the studies that the organs went to. And after about a year, um, well, you know, WRTC invited us to grief counseling. And it's a free service that they offer to any family locally, whether you donate or not, free grief counseling. So that's just a public service announcement. To, right. to, for, for Some organ procurement organizations do this. It was great. And we got to meet about 15 other families who donated for transplant, which was such an eye-opener because sure. I never met anyone that donated. Have you ever met anyone that has mm-hmm. got a transplant? I've met somebody who's been on the receiving end. Um, I've had an uncle who underwent uh, a number of transplants, um, but never on the donating side of things. Okay. So it's kind of fascinating. It is. Did you get a chance to talk to him about what does it mean or what do you have to do? Not really. Um, I was, you know, basically my role there was show up in the hospital after the transplant, you know, Uh wish him well, how Mm -hmm. you doing, that moral support type of thing but as far as being involved in the actual process Mm -hmm. really still in the dark about about the majority of that well it's pretty fascinating i mean just to even think that this is possible and that this can happen Mm -hmm. is kind of amazing and when i met all these people who they were all on the donating end Mm -hmm. so these were the loved ones of people who died they went around the circle I guess like an AA meeting, like, hello, my name is so-and-so, I'm here talking, you know, my, my son got shot by an accidental gunshot wound, and mm-hmm. he donated six organs, and he saved six people, and some of them, you know, wrote the family letters to say thank you. Wow. Right? Yeah. I, that gave me like a tingle up my arm. I was like, that's really For powerful. Sure. Yeah. And then one by one, each person went by and said, oh, you know, my husband died, and he donated two lungs, and he saved two people, and I got a letter, too. I was like, wow, you guys are getting letters. And I was so jealous. I was like, oh, I, you know, my son donated to research. I didn't get a letter or, you know, I don't know the names of any of the researchers. I don't know what they're working on. I don't know if, I don't know if this donation made a difference at all. That's the real question that was in my mind. Right. Was it worthwhile to do this? And of course, my son's life already had meaning to me because he's my son. Of course. But I wanted to know if his life meant something more to other people. So I asked WRTC, could I write a letter to the researchers? And they said, no, we don't have that kind of program for research. Hmm. Um, So I just was like, okay, I tried. I'm not going to push it. But then a year later, I had a business trip to Boston. And I knew that my son's corneas had been sent to Boston. And I Googled where the lab was that got his corneas. And I looked at where my hotel was. And I was able to, um, I called the receptionist while I was there. I explained who I was. And I said, could I just have a tour of the lab? Like, I'm curious about what is happening. And they said that they had never done this kind of thing before. But, yeah, I was welcome to come and tour the lab. So I got to meet the researcher. I got, I got to meet one of the researchers who said he was probably the one that put in the request for the corneas. Wow, okay. 
So I got to ask him, like, you know, why? Why do, why do you need these for? And, like, do you just get corneas mailed to you in the mail? Like, how does this even work? How do you get a cornea? <laughs> you know, like, it's such a strange... It is a weird thing, you know? It's, you yeah. can't exactly go on eBay and, well, you know, search like, for corneas. Is there a catalog? Like, yeah. how do you do this? <laughs> so w- what did you learn? I mean, what did they learn from his corneas? Oh, it was fascinating. They He confirmed that they were shipped via FedEx... Okay. And he showed me where, which that didn't really gross me out or anything. I was just more intellectually, academically curious. Like, how does one do this? How does this happen? Yeah. I was there. So I know what the beginning part was. What was the next step? It was fascinating what they did with the corneas. Um, Based on, so everything was de-identified. And there are HIPAA regulations and all these things about taking away the identity of me and my son. Mm-hmm. But they're my HIPAA rights, and I can waive them if I want. Of course. Right? Of course. So, um, based on, so I revealed some information to the researchers, the date of the death and everything like this. And he said, well, you know, I'm not allowed to say for sure, but based on what you've told me, I believe that this is the study that would have been done on corneas that came in around that time. Um, and they are trying to determine if corneas, which have many layers, I think five layers, and there's certain layers that don't regenerate. If you lose those cells, you lose your eyesight and it never comes back. Hmm. But they're trying to find a way to put umbilical cord blood or stem cells onto the corneal cells and see if they can regenerate. So wow. ultimately, the idea is that you wouldn't need a cornea transplant. You could get like stem cell eye drops. Wow. Instead, right? That's some serious it's science. Fascinating. That yeah. is serious science. This is Harvard, man. This is what they do up yeah, there. Yeah, right? So they found that the research was promising. You know, how scientists are. Yeah. They, of you know, course. They yeah, won't yeah. say anything, but right. they're just like, well, the research showed that this is potentially possible. Um, so that's been fascinating to track. Absolutely. And also the study that they showed me has pictures of what may be my son's eye cells in it. Holy cow. That I have in a frame at home. Wow. And we even had an artist make a watercolor of the eye cells. Now that's cool. Right? Yeah. And every now and then I check the study to see how many other studies have cited it. You know, the same way um, many people, you know, if you want to feel the presence of your loved one that has passed, you could go to their grave and visit them. I can do that. We have He's buried nearby. But I also will, you know, look up the study and count how many citations from other studies have used this information from this study to go into their study. Yeah, yeah. And as of last week, it was 31. Wow. I know. That's that's incredible. Right? 31. Yeah. That's power. That's that's reaching. I mean, a he lot made of a people. difference. He made Absolutely. a difference. There's no question. Yeah. Um, that sounds like kind of a, a unique scenario there, where you were actually able to go and, and to tour the lab and, and find out a little bit more about the research. Were you able to do that with any other? You were all of them. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Well, once I did it the first time, then I was able to do it again after that. Um, I, I contacted WRTC and I told them what I did. They freaked out. Um, <laughs> well, look at you, you rebel. We told you there was no program in place. No, no, they weren't mad. They were scared for me. They said, these researchers aren't trained on how to talk to donor families. You know, they have this whole training program for transplant people and, and donor families to meet each other. Mm-hmm. And they have all these protocols in place. And they've learned all these you know, best practices on how to do this. So here I was just like 
test pilot by myself going in and if he had said something really mean to me or if they'd said something you know like oh your son's corneas are just like an office supply to us we put them in the corner and whatever you know that could have been really painful sure but luckily for me and for the people who have also come after me and done this the first time that i tried it it worked beautifully and the people that welcomed me said uh, we're never going to forget meeting you and we want you to stay in touch with us Mm. And I have been invited back to speak at their uh, lab. I would imagine that was quite the powerful connection. Quite the powerful connection for everybody involved. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So after that happened, I told WRTC that I did it. They Mm -hmm. were shocked but supportive Mm -hmm. and said, we are amazed that you did that. And I said, could you help me do it with the liver? Like, now that I've done it once, I'm not trying to make anyone uncomfortable, violate anything. All I'm saying is I'm a donor mom. I'm a bereaved mom. I donated. Can I get, can I get a tour of your lab just like you would give a member of the public? And WRTC did help me do that. Cool. So we visited Cytonet that got the liver. I got to meet the woman that held my son's liver in her hands. Oh, wow. And she was amazing. Like, these scientists were brilliant and so respectful of the donation. They had said that they never had a donor family visit them before. And they were so excited that, you know, they handle these livers that come in from all over the country. They know it didn't get there by itself. Every liver has a story. Mm -hmm. And as human beings, they're scientists, but they're also human beings. They always wonder about the lives of the people that are touched. Wow. And so they were they welcomed me and my family. They had they made lunch for us. They had a conference room that, and we told stories about. They told stories about what they did. I told stories about my family. I shared pictures of Thomas, and um, they gave us a tour of the lab. That's and and have you been able to track the studies and citations with that as well? Yes, that one they used Thomas's liver in a six liver study to determine the best temperature to freeze infant liver cells for a therapy that they're doing that helps it's a bridge therapy so if a baby needs a liver transplant and he's too little to get one or the liver's not available yet they will liquidate a liver and give the new give the baby some of the liquid liver mm-hmm. the hepatocytes mm-hmm. the liver cells to keep it alive while it's waiting for a liver transplant and so thomas's liver kind of helped inform how they do that wow that's so awesome. So was, before making the decision to donate Thomas's organs, what was your perception of research like this? Did you have any preconceived notions? I suppose I did. I had no scientists or researchers that I know of in my family. I'd never been to a lab. I'd never been able to talk to a PhD or a researcher about what they do. All I knew was what I see on TV and read in the newspaper. Right. It seemed abstract and distant to me to donate to research. Um, and I also had heard, you know, bad stuff like the Tuskegee experiments or Henrietta Lacks stories or stories where because researchers are behind closed doors, like they can just get away with whatever they want. Sure. So I was a little concerned, like, do I want to donate to research? But um, I also thought, like... I know parts of research must be good because that's how we have all these medications. And of course. I didn't have that firsthand experience of course. that I do now. I'm sure that you're, you're grateful to 
you know, have been introduced to this community and, and having your eyes opened and, I mean, sharing your story now. Do you have any idea of how many people you've influenced by your decision and by sharing your story? Um, it's probably in the millions. Holy moly. It's probably in the millions. Um, I've told the story and I've gotten lots of emails from people and emails from other organ procurement groups around the country who will say, we never tried this before, but since we heard your story, we tried it for the first time and it worked and now we have a protocol and now we do it. Wow. Wow. That's that's incredible. I mean, millions. I mean, it's that's ca- that's yeah. not small potatoes. But it's kind of a shame in a way, or not a shame, but I hope that this triggers more because I'm literally just a person who went through the process and got curious and just wanted to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. And every person I tell about this finds it fascinating and interesting, and I feel like every time I tell someone, they open their mind a little bit about what research is. Sure. And I get questions, the same questions that I w- – asked when I was at their stage of knowledge, which is like, how does it work? You know, do they mail them? Do they do this? And how does that work? So now I'm kind of an ambassador for research. (laughs) But if more people had the opportunity that I did, then we wouldn't need so many ambassadors, right? Absolutely. There's no question about it. And you know, before we started rolling, you and I were talking about, you know, this is kind of a, a new one for you to do a podcast like this, where here at the Physicians Committee, we're trying to shine a light on how human tissue donation will decrease the number of animals that will be needed for testing or will be used in testing. And so, like, that's a whole other layer that kind of now goes into this. And, you know, it's for us, it's very important. And uh, certainly, I think uh, a lot of people will also be very surprised to hear that. Um, as well. I, I guess I say that to ask you this question, and, and that is, you know, how can we make research seem more, for lack of a better word, sexy to, uh, to the general public and not such a foreign concept? This is one of my favorite things to do. Um, I think that if people really understood what happens behind the scenes, that they understand i mean when we say we want to make research sexy it's like we want to make people understand the power behind it mm-hmm. when you can understand the impact and then you can really understand the power and you can understand that making this decision i'm taking an active role in this community um i think that when people are allowed to ask questions and go behind the scenes and tour the lab that makes this process so much more fascinating, more powerful, and, you know, more sexier, for lack of a better word. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And now, as kind of an expert, I'm sure that you're able to give some advice on, you know, things that even we can do uh, as an organization to encourage more people to donate. And we're talking both living donations and post-mortem here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What advice would you have? Ask your doctor. I know that... um, if you like there's a lot of people that donate their tumors or blood blood specimens mm-hmm. these are things you can do while you're alive um, ask your doctor what the options are if you're seeing a doctor about these kind of things in terms of um, post-mortem I think it's important to educate yourself on what the options are so you can donate for transplant but People don't always die in a way that allows them to donate for transplant. Right. 
it's in fact it's very rare that someone will die in a way that they can donate their organs. I think it's only one percent is the number of people that are registered as donors who will be able to donate their organs when they die. Really? Because of the need to have the blood flowing constantly. If you die in a car accident, you might not. You know, you need to be hooked up to a machine that will help right. you pump your blood for you. Sure, sure. Um, so it's unusual to be able to donate your organs for transplant. Also, I think it's important to be educated on what a donation to research means to mankind. Of course, donating organs for transplant is important to mankind. But it is a surgical um, movement from one body to another, and it affects, you know, it, it is a Band-Aid that fixes one person's problem, mm-hmm. Right. It's an important Band-Aid, and it's an important problem absolutely, to fix. Absolutely, absolutely. But also I think we need to look deeper into it, and what are the reasons that people are on the transplant list? What diseases do they have that we can find a cure for? Is there a way that one organ can impact a million people, not just one person? Mm. And donation to research is one of those ways. And I only learned about it, you know, backwards or, you know, backing into it. But, for example, my son's corneas were sent to University of Pennsylvania. The woman who received them to do research on them, she's doing cancer research on retinal cancer. She already had um, the eyes of someone who had died of retinal cancer who donated them, so she had those to study. She needed eyes without retinal cancer to compare, and she couldn't do the research without the comparison. Gotcha. So she had placed a request for retinas like my son's six years previously, and she had received zero. Six years? Yeah. There's a waiting list. Holy cow. I mean, people hear a lot about the waiting list for transplants, but what's not as well known is there's a waiting list for research organs. I had no idea until you just said that. Right? I didn't either. I'm sort of trying to piece this together piece by piece, but the woman that received my son's corneas had been waiting for six years. And she waited six more years after his corneas were donated until she received another pair. What advice would you have for a family that's facing a difficult circumstance that you faced and is interested in trying to, um, I think you used a rain barrel analogy Uh earlier, you know, um, what advice would you have for that family as far as getting started with this process? Would it be to start by reaching out to your regional transplant team? Yes. Um, And I have a list of these in my book. They're also on aopo.org, aopo.org. If you're interested in finding out what your organ donation options are, ask your local organ procurement organization. And if someone, and these um, regulations and and protocols change every day because new medical advancements happen and things that used to be yeses are now noes, things that used to be noes are now yeses. If someone gave you information three years ago or you read something or saw something on Grey's Anatomy, don't go on that. (laughs) Grey's Anatomy is not not the the end-all, (laughs) be-all. Right, right. Okay. It's a good inspiration, but call your local organ procurement. Those people know what they're doing. They get updated every day. They know what the possibilities are. And in terms of giving advice, I, I feel a little bit nervous giving people advice because I don't want to come across that I would ever pressure someone to make the decision that I made. Sure. What happened is we made a decision, and it worked out really well for us. 
what happened to me may not happen to everybody. Someone else may have, have a bad experience. Right. My experience was very good. And so I recommend it based on my experience. Right. It really changed our lives. It helped me find um, peace and strength and helped me realize that my son's life has uh, many layers to it. Right? Mm-hmm. And in turn, so does mine. And so does everyone's. Wow. That's a deep statement. That is a deep We're statement. Going We're yeah, going we, deep. We are, I mean, this is a deep topic. There's no way around it. Um, I, I want to ask you before we wrap up uh, about your book, uh, mm-hmm. Life Everlasting. Um, what, when, I, I don't want to say what inspired you to do it. I think that, that that answer is kind of obvious after this conversation. But when did you decide that you wanted to go ahead and write this book and, and put that out there? I had been contacted by a a variety of different media organizations to do newspaper articles and podcasts and TV interviews and things like that. I wanted to put it into a book because I also wanted to give people a step-by-step guide to do what I did. Mm. So when I got through this whole process and I was speaking with some organ procurement professionals, a lot of them who are very experienced, 25 years of experience, said, we've never heard of anyone doing this before ever. So I thought to myself, I need to write down how I did it so if anyone is in my shoes again they can point to this and say well she did it this way can I do that too gotcha that's a, that's a heck of a donation you're making to mankind as well. Uh, the book, A Life Everlasting, is available wherever books are sold, including Amazon.com. And we're going to put up a link to it on our own website, pcrm.org slash podcast. Sarah Gray, thank you so much for your time today. This has really been an enlightening conversation. I never thought at all in all of my time here on Earth about a lot of what it is that we talked today and what you said makes so much sense and and hopefully you other people who are hearing this right now are saying man i had no idea that you could donate for research that's such a cool little thing i hope so too yes it's a crazy story it's a true story and i hope it um, provides some people some peace and some inspiration I so admire the way that Sarah has handled this this life-altering situation. She's handled it with grace and with candor, and it's a lesson that we can all learn from. Such a privilege to have her here in studio with us. Now, I'd like for you to check out our interview on YouTube as well. Maybe share it with a friend or a family member. Just head over to the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel, subscribe, And go ahead, share the video. Before we bring on Christy Sullivan, I wanted to remind you about the Food Revolution Summit that's coming up very, very soon. It's going to be nine days of nutrition education, and it kicks off April 27th. Here's the best part. It's completely free. 24 leading experts in the food and health community will be taking part in this online exclusive, and the event is being led by John and Ocean Robbins. Robbins, that's a pretty famous last name. Who is John Robbins? Well, he is the heir to the Baskin Robbins ice cream throne. But John walked away and is now focusing his life on something much, much, much healthier. 
So among the many experts will be Dr. Neil Barnard. He's going to be participating. He's going to be giving a lecture on how food affects our hormones. We're talking about everything from acne to fertility to cancer and even thyroid problems. You're also going to hear about heart disease from doctors Kim Williams and Dean Ornish. You're going to hear about breast cancer and nutrition from Dr. Christy Funk and how to thrive as a plant-based athlete from podcaster extraordinaire Rich Roll and so many others. You're not going to want to miss this one. The event, absolutely free, but even though it's no cost to you, it greatly benefits the Physicians Committee when you sign up. So we've put a link to enroll on our website. Just head over to pcrm.org slash podcast. Click on this episode page, and there you go. Continuing now on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, joined now via Skype by the Physicians Committee's Vice President for Research Policy, Christy Sullivan. Welcome back to the show, Christy. Thank you. It's great to be here. We just spoke with Sarah Gray, who had this very inspirational and emotional story about donating her newborn's tissue for research, and we heard about all of the good that comes out of it. So we have that humanitarian aspect to it, but there's a other side that goes along with this, and that is how human tissue can actually affect animal testing and reduce the number of animals that, that are being tested in labs. And so before we get into the nuts and bolts of tissue testing as it applies to humans. I want to ask you about what the implications are for human tissue donation when it comes to animal testing. What is the link there? Sure. Well, um, many people don't realize that actually a lot of products that are on our shelves or in the products we use, chemicals, cosmetics, pesticides, have been... um, especially throughout the last century, tested on animals. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that humans are not 70-kilogram mice or rats. We are fundamentally different, our biology and our physiology, from other animals. And so if we're trying to predict what a chemical might do to a person, um, we really need to have uh, human-based models. So, you know, everyone understands the price of drugs is really high these days. One of the reasons is because the drug companies spend billions on researching new potential therapies. Well, they use what are what they call animal models to try to model the disease that a person has, like diabetes, in a mouse, and then they try to cure that disease. Um, cancer, other diseases in that mouse, and then they say, okay, well, we got something, let's try to transfer it to, to people now. And what what we find overall, looking at all the drug development that we've had over time, even the National Institutes of Health says that over 95% of drugs that are developed by pharmaceutical companies fail either because they are too toxic to patients in clinical trials once they get to that stage, or they don't have the desired effect. So they they just aren't as efficacious. 
Right, and, so and that's that's something that you and I have talked about on a previous episode when we were talking yeah. about the organ uh, on a chip thing was was the effectiveness of human tissue versus uh, the, the animal testing. And really, I mean, you, you're talking about a, a, a night and day kind of difference. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because um, it's possible, in fact, likely that cures for patients, cures that patients desperately need, are maybe not being discovered because of this reliance on animals in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. So we've realized this over, you know, over time, and people have started to develop more human-relevant models. Um, and one really good example that's in use every day now in toxicology is um, something called a 3D skin tissue model. So it's it's very cool. It's a three-dimensional model of the human skin that is grown in a laboratory. And there's also one for the eye. And they can take those models and put cosmetics or chemicals on those models in the laboratory and really understand how those chemicals are going to affect human skin, human eyes, human gene and immunology. Well, those are used every day by chemical companies and testing labs. And in order to grow those skin models, they need human tissue. Um, Usually, those particular models are developed with uh, skin tissue that would have been previously discarded, um, maybe left over from a cosmetic surgery or some other surgery. They have a relationship with a hospital where the laboratory will get those skin cells and take them into the lab, and it takes a couple weeks to kind of grow up and and make that 3D tissue. So that's the link. And you can do that for lots of different kinds of human cells and tissues. Well, see, now that that kind of makes me wonder, you know, having lost so much weight, even after a decade, I still have quite a substantial amount of extra skin uh, on me. And at some point in my life, I would love to have it removed. And so now I'm thinking, well, instead of just having it cut off and discarded, maybe that's something then that I I could donate and, and have some good come out of that. You sure could. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That is that is excellent to know. Uh, Christy Sullivan is my guest here, joining me via Skype here on the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee. Um, I want to ask you, I know that uh, you have done a lot of research about um, w- how human tissues are being used to find cures for some of the most common diseases uh, that are plaguing humans right now. So specifically, can you tell me some of the, the diseases that these human tissue donations now are, are going to uh, research and, and help try to find a cure for? Yes, definitely. Um, and, and really, it's a, a, a wide variety of different diseases and different types of research that are being conducted at universities and hospitals all across the country. One good example is that um, scientists have been able to develop biomarkers for type 2 diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis, and those biomarkers are used to detect whether people have a disease and maybe how severe their disease is, so it helps to, comes back to helping the patients um, cure their own disease. Mm -hmm. 
Perceptin, which is a, a drug designed to treat certain types of breast cancer, was developed, and many other therapies have been developed using human tissue. Um, scientists can now take um, what they're, they're calling breast cancer in a dish and create um, healthy breast tissue and then add cancerous tissue onto it and model and study and try to understand how that cancerous tissue behaves and then test potential therapies on it. Wow. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, deeper understanding of other diseases like amyotrophic lateral sclerosis and cystic fibrosis, you know, many diseases have been, um, our understanding of those diseases ha has been advanced and uh, potential therapies have been advanced using human tissues in the laboratory. And, and I mean, you're talking about some, some pretty major diseases. Um, diabetes is something that we've talked about quite a bit on this show. And with more than 100 million Americans now either being diabetic or pre-diabetic, that research is critically important. And, and you also mentioned breast cancer. I believe that the statistic there is staggering in that one in about every eight women in the country will be impacted by breast cancer at some point in their life. These are huge numbers of people that will be affected by this research. It's, it's not like a lot of this is going to study obscure diseases. These are really diseases that impact so many of our friends, of our family members, of our colleagues, people that we interact with day in and day out, our closest loved ones. This is really important stuff. It really is. And, you know, something that's also very interesting that scientists are doing is they're using donated tissues and organs to try to improve the organ and tissue donation process. So everybody or, you know, many people might understand that there's sort of a list of um, people who are looking for organ donation who need a new organ or maybe cancer patients who need new bone marrow. Um, and that list is always longer than the number of organs that are available. Mm -hmm. And so researchers are, are kind of using donated bone marrow to try to understand whether they can create new bone marrow without having to use donated um, tissue or other donated organs. Or maybe there's a way to kind of create new organs using cells that can it really increase the number of available organs and make it so that more people can um, can live um, from these new advances. And and that's something that Sarah Gray and I were talking on uh, were were talking about earlier in the show was that the organ donation you, people think that you you check the box on your driver's license to say yes I'm going to be an organ donor and automatically your organs are going to go and help save a life. Theoretically, that is a phenomenal and wonderful thing. But she was pointing out that the reality of that is there are so few cases where the organs are actually viable for donation that mm -hmm. so many more of them can actually then be used for research as, as opposed to 
donation to another person. And if it goes to research, Christy, then you're reaching so many more people than just a yeah. single person. And that's obviously not to downplay whatsoever organ donation to save a single life. You cannot put a price on life. But what you can do is say, well, I can't necessarily save this one life, but what if, what if what I donate then goes to research that can then save tens of thousands, if not millions of lives? That's the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. It really is. And, um, you know, one thing that people don't realize is that some states, when you check that box, you essentially are signing up for both. You're signing up for organ donation and also tissue donation for research. But some states require you to check more than one box. And so that's an important thing to look for if you want to make sure that it's clear, that your wishes are clear, that you want to contribute to scientific research. The other thing that's important is to talk to your family because, you know, um, not everyone who passes away is is signed up to be an organ donor, or if they are, maybe the family isn't aware of those wishes. And so it's important to make sure that every, everyone is really clear about, you know, the intent to, to donate your organs and tissues and um, to, to have this discussion with family members. Mm-hmm. And here's something also that I, I, I want to ask you is that we talked about donating tissue from cosmetic surgery and things of that nature, but you there are other ways that you can still donate before uh, you pass away. You don't necessarily have to wait until you know you check that box at the DMV or the MVA or whatever it is that they call it uh, at your state. You can actually be proactive while you're still here today and actually get involved in the tissue donation process, correct? Right. So maybe someone's having a knee surgery. Um, pretty much any most hospitals have, um, especially the larger teaching hospitals like, you know, University of Michigan or any other big university hospital will have these connections with scientists. Um, and so maybe you're a patient enrolled in the clinical trial, you know, you can talk with your doctor about, you know, ways that you can get involved and, and potentially help to contribute to this life-saving research. And I think that if you're, if you're listening to this podcast, and nine times out of ten you're listening because you want to hear about health and, and nutrition, but the other big aspect that I just want to circle back to here, Christy, is that a big part of what we do at the Physicians Committee is also uh, to discuss animal welfare. And we talked about this just ever so briefly at the beginning of our segment, is that by Using human tissue, not only are you increasing the effectiveness of the research that's being done, uh, you're also reducing the number of animals that will be uh, impacted for this testing. Because, I mean, let's let's face it, you know, we're not mice. We're not the mice that are often used in this research. We're not pigs. We're not dogs. We're not cats. We're human beings. And so, to me, it just seems to make the most sense that if we're trying to find a cure for a human disease, that we obviously should be using human cells to do so. 
Just saying. Yes. So what we find when in talking to scientists is that many more want to use human tissue than might actually be available. And so that's why the Physicians Committee has gotten involved in this effort to try to encourage people to sign up to be organ and tissue donors and to really raise awareness that um, there is a real need for human organs and tissues in order to improve scientific discovery. Mm -hmm. And the more scientists that are able to use those types of tissues, uh, the the fewer animals will be used in uh, research. Such a such an absolutely critical uh, point there. Before we wrap things up, what else do you think that we should be touching on here? What, what haven't we hit on that's important for listeners to know? You know, one thing that um, we talked about earlier was organs on chips and how those advanced models are enabling scientific discovery that wasn't possible even five years ago. Mm-hmm. So all of those really depend on cells that scientists can get from from organs and tissues. So as we continue to advance our scientific understanding and knowledge, we're really just going to need um, more people to understand the importance of human-relevant research and support it. And so... Uh, hopefully this podcast will go a long way towards that. And we have uh, put up a link for people to get involved if they're interested in becoming a an organ donor, a tissue donor themselves. We have a lot of resources available on our website to get you started in that process. And there's also a lot more information uh, about what it is that Christy and I have been talking about. Uh, here today. And what Sarah and I talked about earlier in the show, uh, we have a ton up there on 3D bioprinting, on organs on chips. Uh, we even have a human tissue roundtable in, in which experts convened, and we talked more in depth about all of these issues. Uh, it's really a, a fascinating a resource that I would encourage everybody to to really take some time and 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 look at what's on there, um, and and figure out if if being a donor is something that you're interested in. For whatever reason, I know that a lot of people have been on the fence about this, but it's such an important issue that Christy, I, I think that you know, as we've said, it can impact so many, just millions and millions of lives. That it's you know, if you if you want to give back to your fellow man, this is certainly an, an important way to do it. I couldn't have said it better. That's, I totally agree. <laughs> Christy Sullivan, uh, thank you so very much for joining us today on the Exam Room Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I think that it's important that we also mention the privacy aspect of donation. I know there are a lot of people concerned about making sure that their personal information is protected. They may not want to have anything identifiable being sent to researchers. Well, here's some good news. You don't really have to worry about that. Certainly, health or disease information about the organs and the tissue itself, that's going to be provided. 
It's important to note whether the tissue comes from somebody with cancer or with somebody who had diabetes. But any other personally identifiable information like your name or your address or social security number, none of that information will ever be shared with researchers. Different type of topic today. Definitely a different type of topic, but certainly also an important one. You know, we recently put together a PSA about this very topic, about organ and tissue donation. And I actually, I got an opportunity to participate and had an absolute blast filming some lines for it. And uh, I was joined by Ollie. I'm just going to tell you a story here for a second. I was joined by Ollie, who is this enormous dog that we have here in the office. One of my colleagues, she brings him in every single day. And Ollie, he's got to be 100 pounds if he's a single pound. I mean, he is massive. And he loves to put every single one of those pounds right up on you. His favorite game is, can I knock this guy over? He's come close. Goodness knows he's come close, especially when he gets a little bit of a running start. It's kind of like getting hit by a big old furry wall. I love it. Absolutely love it. Sheds like a champ, too. Anyway, uh, he and I make a cameo in this PSA about tissue donation, and we're going to be putting that video up on our website, pcrm.org slash podcast. Rumor has it that somewhere on the interwebs floating around are outtakes of this. Ollie, for as much fun as he is, not quite ready for prime time. Didn't really know where to look for the camera and honestly didn't have much interest in learning about it either. He was just there for treats. Who can blame him, though? Hmm? Not me. Speaking of videos, fun or otherwise, you can find episodes of the Exam Room podcast up on YouTube. A lot of listeners discovering the show that way. Just head over to the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and subscribe today. We have a bunch of videos up there ready for your viewing pleasure if you ever wanted to put a face with the voices you hear every week. Anyway, another good way to learn a little bit more about us. Hop on Twitter or Instagram and give us some follows. Tweet me or the show at Chuck Carroll WLC. That's Carroll with two R's and two L's. The WLC standing for Weight Loss Champion. And the show you can follow at PCRM on the gram at Chuck Carroll WLC again, but a little bit different this time for the show at Physicians Committee. We love hearing from you guys. Always, you guys have such great stories of your own that you want to share. You're so eager to share, and you have some great suggestions for topics, too. Plus, we've got a ton of inspiration and nutrition know-how up there. I know I've posted a lot of my before and after weight loss photos, and there's even a clip of me discussing my severe food addiction with Dr. Neil Barnard. I've pinned that to the top of my Twitter page. And at PCRM, always so many good facts being sent out there. Fascinating stuff about the latest medical research that we're conducting or new studies that are coming out. And speaking of coming out, if you're ready to have your very own vegan coming out party, but you're not quite vegan yet, how about going all in with our upcoming Vegan Kickstart Intensive? It's a two-day affair that will teach you everything that you need to know about how to get going on a plant-based diet. Or maybe you've been vegan for a while and could just use the tune-up. That's okay, too. As a matter of fact, it's exactly what this course is set up to do. So save the date, May 10th 
and 11th right here in Washington, D.C., not very far at all from our PCRM headquarters and the exam room studios. I'm going to be speaking there. Dr. Barnard, he's going to be speaking there. Show favorite, Lee Crosby, a.k.a. the Fiber Queen, she's going to be speaking there, and so many others. And we would love to have you join us. Want to go? Discount registration is available until April 26th, so hurry, hurry, hurry. Just head over to PCRM.org to register. And that, my friend, is going to do it for today. Hopefully, we've given you something to think about. I know I certainly have a lot to think about. And Sarah Gray's story was just incredible, wasn't it? Many thanks again to her for coming on and sharing it with us. And thank you also to Christy Sullivan for her time. For everybody here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, keep it plant-based. Plant-based.